and welcome to episode 199, that's 199, episode 199 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm your host, and as usual, I have Tony with me here today. Hey, Tony, how are you doing? I'm going well, you know, I can't believe, you know, who would have thought that 200, we're almost at 200, I thought for sure I was going to get fired within the first couple weeks, but uh, <laughs> fortunately, I don't think that any of the bosses, the powers that be, I don't know if they listen to this, so they just kind of let us get away with anything. That's nice to hear. I'm glad you're. I'm. I'm glad you're still here with us. That's good. <laughs> so this week we actually have a guest, but uh, SmartStream is the sponsor, right, Tony? That's correct. Absolutely, you know them, and uh, we hope that uh, you support the people that support this podcast by clicking on their reconciliations white paper that we have in the link. Uh, now, last week I told you that, you know, despite the fact that we're supposed to be social distancing, I was going to hunt you down. I was going to find you if you didn't click on on the reconciliations paper, but. Fortunately, most of you were good. But I did notice that Tommy Quirk of LBC Capital Management listened to the podcast, but did not click on the link. Tommy, I know it was you. And you broke my heart. Hmm. Isn't that a Godfather reference? I mean, if billions can get away with like 20 Godfather references per episode, why can't I? Fair enough. Fair enough. So, anyway... Tell us a little bit about this week's guest. Well, this week's guest is uh, Marshall Saffer. Um, he's uh, at Hazel Tree. He was previously at MIK Fund Solution. I've known Marshall uh, for many, many years. Um, one of the first um, sources I really got to know when I joined uh, Waters about 10 years ago or so. And always just, he's a smart guy, kind of looks at things in an, in an interesting way. Um, you know, and so we 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 touched on a range of topics uh, relating to the coronavirus, certainly, um, and just some of the challenges that are facing the buy side. He's been working with buy side firms for many, many years. And so we kind of just kind of bounced around just the same way me and him would if we were at a bar or something like that. So uh, I thought it was a fun conversation. Hopefully you guys do, too. So definitely worth a listen. Yeah, cool. I mean, and before before we jump into that, I just want to talk to you a little bit about your article that you wrote on uh, Stevens Institute. Mm -hmm. Interesting story there. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, you you have to tell me that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So we'll link to this as well. But um, Stevens Institute of Technology uh, over in Jersey. Um, I've known many, 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 many sources. I've known in the kind of the capital markets technology space. Um, are graduates of Stevens, and they've created an artificial exchange. Um, there are several other artificial exchanges that exist there in the world. Um, theirs, they hope, is going to be different than those, and they want to commercialize it, um, looking to sell to the big banks, Goldman, UBS. Um, they've had conversation with looking to um, have... Uh, maybe sell it to the regulators, the SEC, CFTC. They've had informal conversations with. Um, but it's an interesting, what they are proposing is very, very interesting because it's supposed to really, really look at how a market will react if you, under different kind of market conditions. So it's a sandbox for people to play around with. Start out as an academic exercise for, uh, for students to play around with. But now they think, all right, you know, we still don't fully know what happened with the flash crash. Potentially, this could be something that could help solve 
coming up some of those mysteries that exist um, for Reg AT. Um, it could help with that 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 sticky source code provision that's in there, um, and it's just it it could be good for people just to people really want to just test out a new algorithm, see how it responds in a high frequency environment um, that doesn't really exist on the artificial exchange level right now on a commercial artificial exchange level. So that's what they're kind of trying to kind of get out there. They work with Capco on this, and. They've had a couple of student contests that kind of poked holes and everything. Now they're they're at least starting to think about how they're going to commercialize. They they don't have a pricing structure yet. They need to they need to sign that first big client. They sign that first big client, then that leads to the second client. That that client kind of works with them. They work out some because the user interface apparently needs a real needs to be dusted or not dusted off dusted off. I guess whatever the hell the term is. Whatever your technologist used to describe uh, <laughs> improving the user interface, um, but so that needs to be improved upon. I'm sure there will be other things that will have to be improved upon, but they get the first one that leads a second one, third one, fourth one, and so on down the line. I have no idea whether or not that it'll be successful or not as a commercial product, but it's certainly interesting what they've built there. And if it does work the way that they say it can and will work then this will be certainly for the regulators an interesting proposition for them and if it can help solve some of the problems with the those trickier ends of reg at it at least they'll have one at least the cftc then should at least be interested in it but who knows uh, that we're, that's still a little way off right I, th I thought that was one interesting point that he made as well and we've touched we talk a lot uh, about this uh, with the solution providers or the buy side and sell side in terms of like back testing, right? Back testing mm -hmm. their strategies or back testing their algorithms that they want to use uh, in in their in their trading systems, um, or when it comes to execution, for example. So what the one point that he made here that we've we've not maybe uh, talked about a lot before is that back testing is historically misleading, and the fact that he, the, the point that he, um, I, I guess, amplified here is that it's it is historically misleading because the market is mutating all the time, and new players are coming in and going out, and so many uh, the market dynamics are changing all the time, which is maybe, um, yeah, which is why back testing is not as, um, I mean, um, what do you call that? Yeah. No, no, <laughs> yeah. it's to, to the point is it's. This is meant to be a real market environment as it stands today with real data um, uh, flowing in right now. They're using data from Refanda for equities. They have a, new, a partnership with uh, CME Group, which was um, uh, helped with some of the initial funding to get this thing off the ground. Um, but exactly, the market mutates, the market changes. And just think about what high frequency today means. High frequency trading means today versus what it meant when flash boys came out versus what it meant you know five years ten years before that mm. um the pace of change in the market is incredible and you know we were talking about you know oh we have to have our building as close as possible our, our data set as close as possible to the exchange then it's microwave technology then it's, it's all this kind of different stuff this is aimed at showing true market structure changes starting with equities um, and 
including that high frequency cra crowd that a lot of other exchanges they contend don't handle. Um, I'll be honest with you, though. I'm not a full expert on I haven't used any of the other artificial exchanges, but this is the paper that they put out and that that's what they contend. And so if they're right, they're going to be successful. If they're embellishing, well, then they're probably going to hit some uh, roadblocks along the way. Mm, OK, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And yeah, uh, as soon as they get like a, a big bank on, yeah. then yeah, they need that. OK, well, with that, let's kick it over to your conversation with uh, Marshall next week. All right. And now I'm joined by Marshall Saffer, uh, head of sales in the Americas for Hazel Tree. Marshall, thanks so much for being on the podcast with us. Yeah, no problem. Now, normally I would not allow a salesperson onto the podcast. I love salespeople, you know, but <laughs> it's, uh, you know, normally we're, we're looking for the technology stuff like that. The people are working deep in the weeds, but I've known Marshall. Uh, it's got to be over a decade now, right? Marshall, uh, from yeah, back in definitely. the days at MIK. Yep. Yeah. So, and Marshall knows not only does he know a lot about um, the buy side specifically and technology, and me and him, we've always had really good conversation. So, actually, I'm very excited to have you on. So, I do appreciate you uh, coming on. No problem. I've been doing this a long time. So have you. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Marshall, I guess maybe just to start off with, just so people have a, an understanding, why don't you tell the audience for those that aren't familiar, kind of a little bit just about what Hazel Tree does and what you're doing there? Yeah, I came on board Hazel Tree um, to build out the sales organization around treasury management that we're doing for buy side firms, typically large asset managers, hedge funds, and we're just starting to get into private equity. So it's it's an area that has not been focused heavily by these firms. And so we've been automating and providing a web-based solution for treasury management and cash optimization and management. Okay. And still, but, you know, we'll kind of get into kind of some of the, the technology issues around that um, that aren't related to the uh, COVID-19 outbreak and uh, mm -hmm. the kind of pandemic lockdown. But for you personally, you know, we were having a little discussion before, but, you know, looking at how firms have now had to work remotely and, you know, BCP plans never really kind of prepared for something like this. Um, what for you has been kind of the strangest change um, uh, in these times? Well, I, I guess there's both the work and the personal side, right? The whole working mm -hmm. remote in isolation is definitely a change, something I've never really had to do. I'm definitely a team player and like to be in the office. Yeah. So having to stay focused and work remotely and, and carry on the day-to-day -day kind of task has definitely been a challenge for me. Uh, in terms of what I'm hearing from my peers and some of the other organizations that, that I kind of work with, is no one was prepared for the whole influx of the amount of individuals working from home, right? As you said, everybody was set up for remote access through some sort of BCP facility, mm -hmm. but a lot of the banks and the prime brokers and some of my hedge fund clients and asset manager clients, they were definitely not set up from a technical infrastructure standpoint to have hundreds of people accessing a network remotely from different locations. Yeah, it would seem to me, and, and, you know, by and large, there have been some hiccups in the industry, right? Uh, you know, some outages here, some slowdowns there. Yeah. Um, but by and large, the capital markets have, you know, kind of kept on moving, and it feels a little bit like, you know, 
you just kind of use some duct tape. You, you kind of make some repairs on the fly. You kind of learn from it. But as long as everything kind of stays up and running smoothly, everybody's okay. It kind of feels like that's the state we're in right now is people are still trying to get their feet under them. You know, whether or not that leads to longer-term changes as things kind of work out because hope things are starting to open up a little bit um, here in the U.S. And, and my colleagues in Hong Kong, they're already kind of getting back into the office, everything like that. So you're seeing it in different areas. But it kind of feels like right now it's a little bit, let's just patchwork this and get it going and get through it and make it workable. Um, and then kind of the changes come after that. Do you see that being the case? Or is it just, do you even think that there are going to be long-term repercussions, I guess, and changes that people are going to have to make to their infrastructure and BCP plans? Yeah, I, I think that, so if, if you look back at what's happened over the past couple months, right, I think that the capital markets definitely hit, some speed bumps from a stressor in terms of the volumes, banks in terms of processing, um, credit markets in terms of liquidity, like there was definitely some hiccups. There's no doubt about that, right? And I think they're trying to figure out and beef up their systems and the infrastructure to support just the capital markets activities concept besides the personnel. Uh, I always find it interesting, like you look at the New York Stock Exchange, they closed it down, everybody went home, they didn't have a floor, and no one even really noticed, right? So, you know, the question is, are all these people still necessary? That's the, the scary component of, I think, what might the fallout be for a lot of the banks and brokerage firms and, and software vendors is when people aren't in the office and things still work and things are still working efficiently, you know, what does that say about staffing and efficiency and, and overall operation structure? Well, it just made, it, it creates so many interesting questions. So, like, you know, we were talking before about how New York City has, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, I guess, been recession-proof, and meaning that this city doesn't get hit as hard as some other cities get hit. Like, even during the financial crisis, thousands and thousands of people laid off, of course, but yep. the city itself didn't fall into this death spiral. Yep. Um, and a large part of that is because of this corporate real estate infrastructure that just all the tax revenue that's coming in from that, all the all the big money. Now, if you have companies that start saying, all right, we're going to cut our workforce, you know, to uh, we're going to reduce our staff total levels, so lay people off. Yeah. And then also we're going to have, you know, X amount of people working remotely that don't really need to be in the office. Right. Now all of a sudden you have all this real estate that's just going empty. Or you, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a scary thing that I think you look at on the horizon because, does, you know, the way that, you know, I, I kind of look at it in some ways is, Detroit kind of lost its factories. You know, the factories moved out of town and sent Detroit spiraling. For us, we didn't have factories. We had these, you know, 50-story high-rises and the suit-and-tie crowd, right? Yeah, but you also, have, kind of yeah, you also have Google and Facebook that built up a large presence and J.P. Morgan's presence, and you've got the Bloombergs of the world, right? I mean, those were thousands and thousands of employees. And if, if you just reduce it by 50% with people rotating, in and out on a weekly basis, right? You only need 50% of the space that you've signed up for. Yeah. And and then you have 50% of the space, and then the ripple effects of that is the businesses around those that were thriving, you know, your Pret-a-Manger or whatever it is, getting your lunch and stuff like that, the, yeah. the commuter trains, you know, the subways, all those taking massive hits that they just never could have seen. And then one of the other things that we were saying is, you know, a lot of my family, they live down in North Carolina, Um you know, there for the same job that I have here in New York, you're going to get paid less in North Carolina. But right. 
the cost of living is significantly lower there. If you start having people move away, does it kind of create this rethink around salary and how much am I going to be paying people? Because right now you're paying for that cost of living in New York City, the having to go out for lunch and pay $15 for a soda and a sandwich and those kind of things. I mean, if you look at a few years ago, Goldman Sachs made the you know the conscious effort that they were going to move some employees out of New York, right, New York City. And yeah. they went to Salt Lake City, Utah. Right? I mean, yeah. they they saved a boatload of money by relocating a lot of their their back office operation staff not overseas, but just, you know, nearshoring out in in Salt Lake City. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's definitely going to be a a real issue that's going to be have to be dealt with over the next couple months as as the fallout shakes out. Yeah, I almost think that there are going to have to be incentives almost put in place to have people keep on coming in. Like, because the one thing to remember is, you know, the people that own these massive buildings and these massive properties in New York City, they have a lot of political clout. No, absolutely. <laughs> I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they almost give employers incentives to make sure that people keep on coming in. But then you have a talented young developer programmer or just somebody that works for your team comes in and says, where they almost be like, listen, I can easily do this job remotely. I'm going to go live out in the Poconos, and you don't have to worry about me. Right. And it kind of becomes this hiring thing where, yeah, you get these incentives to have people in the office, but then also you have you know people just saying, no, I just I I can I don't have to be in New York City and have to deal with all that shit they have to deal with on a daily basis. Right. Um. A- absolutely. And. Can a call there on uh, on? Uh, yeah, I was. I'm just getting rid of it. <laughs> Sorry about that. This is this is the this is the nature of work now. You know, it's just you know we're always connected, always at the uh, beck and call. Yeah. Um, that's actually the one thing I, I I think that a lot of people are learning right is that the thing that sucks also about working from home all the time is your day can easily bleed and become so much longer than. You know, you come into an office, you know, you're there from 9 to 5 or whatever your hours are. Yeah, you get to leave. leave. Yeah, then you get to leave, you go home, it's in, you know, 30-minute, 40-minute, hour-long, whatever it is, commute. But when you get home, it's just your life is life. Now, you're almost kind of expected. Everybody knows you're somewhere near your desk, right? Right. You you have to set up these boundaries, but I think that's been uh, one of the bigger things personally, kind of getting used to that. Yeah, being on 24-7 is definitely tough. And tell me, so... Looking at kind of software development and looking at just, you know, working with clients, you know, you're coming from the sales side, obviously, but what what changes ha- are happening right now when it comes to kind of that sales cycle, which in financial technology, as I understand it, has always been a long process just by and large to the regulatory needs because of uh, the niche uh, needs of capital markets firms. How is that kind of changing in this environment? Yeah, I, I think that in the short term, a lot of projects were either put on hold or delayed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as you said before, people, when we were talking, people were just trying to put out fires and figure out how to exist in this new norm for the short term, make sure everything gets processed, make sure trades go through, settlements go through, reconciliation, right? Cash is being moved. And, and I think we're going to have to have see how this shakes out over the next couple months before I think people move beyond we just fixed a problem to what can I do to improve my processes or BCP or infrastructure if this is going to be a prolonged permanent change. Right? Mm-hmm. From a sales standpoint, 
it has been very difficult to get people to focus on financial services software for operational uses. Uh, I think people are still buying things like analytics and data because that's easily digestible and has an immediate impact uh, and an alpha generating capability. But projects like accounting systems or risk systems or treasury systems that I'm selling, right? The idea of changing operations and which will impact people and their jobs and workflows, they're taking some time to actually process that to figure out what's going to be the best mode of operation moving forward to support this, this new paradigm. So it's definitely slowed down. How do you adjust to that? Like, you know, so as you're kind of trying to think long-term, all right, because there are going to be firms, right, that are going to change the way that they are interacting with, um, you know, uh, what kind of products are kind of bringing in, how they're interacting with representatives mm. from the vendor community, stuff like that. Do you kind of, are you thinking right now about, all right, what are maybe some of the long-term ramifications that we should be doing, best practices that we can start working on right now, or do you kind of got to let it play out a little bit and see where things go? I mean, I'm trying to be as proactive as possible to talk to as many people as possible to kind of educate or find out what's happening in the marketplace and figuring out where the pain points are. Yeah. I think one of the biggest areas is with people working remote that used to work right next to each other, like being two feet away, right, that the whole concept of running infrastructure on Excel, right, yeah. Excel's not enterprise, it's not shareable, it's not really web-enabled, like, so all the, the processes, whether it be treasury or whether it be performance measurement attribution or any type of reporting where you've got to share data and do things together in a collaborative environment, I think people have to start looking at And I think people know that, but I think people have to get, we've got to get over this crisis first so where people yeah. can breathe, and then these, these problems will probably get addressed and looked at. Well, does that make know, sense? Absolutely, it does. And, you know, it, 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 actually this is something, because, Marshall, I, I think one of the maybe the first stories that I might have talked to you about was buy-side firms, their dependency on Microsoft Excel. Yeah, that was like 10 years ago. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> And it was, you know, all right, here are these automation tools that are coming out. You know, hopefully right now the industry is dominated by Excel, but, you know, there is there is a, a legitimate desire to kind of move away from that. Um, Ten years later, that desire, that desire still exists in many ways, but people are like, yeah, no, it's just, it's just too ingrained. And yeah, too you would see kind of Microsoft itself is now trying to kind of create new tools kind of new plugins into an Excel to make automation and make working remotely easier. But from what you've seen, before we talk into the actual uh, kind of coronavirus and that, that kind of ramifications on Excel mm -hmm. and, and workflow, what are the challenges that buy-side firms face just because it, it's a good tool, Microsoft Excel, these spreadsheets, they work, but what are kind of some of the challenges that create when you're just so tied into it? Well, if you've got individual projects or individual Excel sheets that, that you work on yourself, it's, it's not such a big deal, right? You can work on an Excel sheet, you can open it, you can close it, you can save it. It really comes into where those Excel sheets are ingrained in a workflow or an operation where the data in that sheet or the process has to be shared across either departments or with people. And, and I think that's where Excel kind of breaks down significantly. Um, it's also, as you talked about before, right, I come from a data warehousing background. And so when you work in Excel, there's no concept of data through time. The sheet shows you 
what's there at that moment, right? There's no concept of trend analysis or being able to query information that might go back historically that you might want. And so it's, it's a good tool for analysis and calculations and formulas, but it's not the best when you're trying to do analysis over time where you've got to chain link information or you need to do, say, attribution or performance man, uh, measurement, which is, which is linking information through time. And then maybe connecting it a little bit more into your day-to-day, um, looking at, you know, cash management and treasury on the buy side, you know, at the DTCC, they're going to be hosting a webinar on June 3rd called uh, Navigating the Margin Call Tsunami. Yeah. But as we're kind of seeing this volatility with collateral calls, margin call increases, what stress is that kind of putting on the buy side right now? Well, m- most of the it, it started with the stressor started at the actual prime broker and the, the banking level where they weren't settling and being able to get the, the amount of the volume through their systems. So where information the next morning was delayed. So when you're dealing with collateral calls and margin calls, you want to know first thing in the morning what move, uh, what money you've got to move to cover what instrument or what actually happened the prior day or prior evening. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing was the stressor on the, the actual bank side in terms of that. And then you had the all, all the internal processes that were based off of predominantly Excel in most cases mm-hmm. to where that couldn't handle the volume either. And so it was just having a compounding effect of people not knowing what cash they had to move, what cash was uh, available at a given time, and you know what, what they were going to do with that cash or where it actually was located. And, and Excel just wasn't cutting it or doesn't cut it. Yeah. Why, why then do people still rely so much? Because everybody kind of knows this. Why is it something that is just so hard to break away from? I, I understand it's just so ingrained, and that's probably what it is, but – you know, there are certainly solutions that the technology is improving in so many different areas and creating new, you know, kind of tools to kind of work around. Why is this still something that's such a, a difficult thing to break away from? Well, it, it's funny because the treasury function or the concept of a treasury operation was, is the norm on the corporate side, right? You, you never have, you know, an Amex. You never have a Philip Morris, right, not having a treasury department to manage cash and payments and wires and forecasting. Mm-hmm. But on the buy side – Traditionally, cash was a byproduct of the trading activity and not really looked at as an active asset class to be managed in real time. Mm-hmm. And that's changing, right? And, and I think that now this crisis, you know, we had the first crisis, which I, you know, back in 2008 when the financial crisis hit, that was mm-hmm. the first stressor where people said, oh, maybe its business model doesn't work so well in scale. And I think the pandemic and these higher volumes has once again created a catalyst where people are going to be looking at their internal operations across the board, including, you know, treasury, cash management, operations kind of concepts to say there's got to be a better way if this is if this is what we have to deal with daily. Okay. And then looking from like 2008 to, to today, what tech, so as firms are kind of contemplating uh, new solutions around it, what technological advancements have been made in the kind of the treasury cash management space that is allowing this to become at least a little bit more automated? What, what are kind of some of the major sea changes that have occurred? Well, the first is you be, you, you've had a whole group of people that came out with dedicated applications just for treasury and cash management and wires and payments, mm-hmm. right? And so before that didn't exist, in which why Excel became so embedded um, and with the focus, right? So now people have actually focused on the business problem, written pretty cool applications to help with the process to reduce manpower and time that's required and reducing risk 
by providing the tools and the automation. So mm -hmm. I think it was just the, the demand and people knowing that if you manage your cash and your securities finance and your collateral and margin, that that process of run efficiency really could add basis points to the overall performance of a fund. Mm -hmm. And so now Treasury is being viewed as a way to enhance performance numbers and not just as a cost center. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think and all activities, I think operations themselves, forget about treasury and cash management and security finance. I think a well-run operation definitely adds basis points to the overall performance of a fund by adding efficiency. Well, you know, and so looking in at some of the trends that are kind of unfolding right now, um, as, as I understand, best I understand, uh, hedge funds can be outperforming the benchmarks as a whole, though there are hedge funds that have you know, obviously closed down or there are hedge funds that have uh, certainly taken massive losses, but the hedge fund community as a whole for the first time in a long time is kind of proving its worth um, right now for, for many people. Do you kind of see any kind of trend in that or is that just kind of a blip because of just the way the market is right now? Uh, that's a very good question. I mean, hedge funds were designed to perform during volatility and over the past 10 years, there hasn't been much volatility in the market, hence the you know, index funds and passive investments taking yeah. the forefront. But I think once you introduce volatility, that that's where hedge funds should shine. And I think the good guys will continue to do well. And there, there are some people that are going to be caught on the wrong side of the volatility. But all in all, as you said, this has probably been the best environment for the hedge fund industry that we've seen in, in years. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, I don't have any hard numbers on this, but just uh, just kind of hearing around that there have been a lot of hedge fund launches yeah. actually right now kind of just in this market, people just trying to kind of seize on an opportunity, I guess. Yeah, the um, number of launches over the past eight weeks has been at the fastest clip in, I, I think, almost ever at this point. Yeah, yeah, especially after when you look at 2008, just, it was just, those numbers kept on just declining year on year on year. Yeah. Um, and then, so when you talk about the ones that will succeed are the ones that that do it well. Now, obviously, there is a lot of business. There's a lot of strategy behind it. We kind of already talked a little bit about it, but is, are there kind of best practices that for one of these hedge funds that are launching, what are kind of some of the key things that they need to keep in mind um, as far as how they're building their infrastructure and going out connecting with the market? Yeah, I, I think for you know a lot of the launches that have happened have been on the, the smaller side in terms of size. Yeah. And I think that cost containment and efficiency and automation are important for those guys to have a successful business model because the cost of, of running any sort of money management firm have, have definitely gone up over the years, year over year. So there definitely has to be an attention to cost containment and efficiency so these people can thrive because you don't want all your, your management money and performance money going into the operations itself. Okay. And – um, you know, before we kind of get going here, um, you know, just I think that some people might be interested in this. Uh, it was about a year ago or so, um, or late last year, I know, uh, Hazel Tree acquired Enzo Analytics from CME yeah. Group. Yep. Um, how has that integration been going? Um, any any kind of new updates uh, you give to the audience? Yeah, I, I, it's been a, a great purchase or a great integration. We've got IHS Market as an investor in in the company through the acquisition. So the combination of Enzo Hazel Tree and an IHS market, I think, is is providing a great backbone for the future growth of Hazel Tree. Um, the product itself, we've just finished the integration of the Enzo infrastructure into the Hazel Tree. So both platforms have now been merged. 
Um, so you're really providing a, a really one-stop shop for security finance, for margin, for counterparty metrics, and cash management and optimization. And I, I think that there's only success going forward, and we're educating the market now, and the market's been been great for us in terms of this volatility and these, these problems that so I, I only see upside for us. Okay. And, you know, just to wonder, you know, looking at the buy side analytics space, I guess, as a whole, obviously, you know, this is just going to keep on going on where, you know, people want more information. They want to be able to crunch that information. Uh, looking at it from, you know, kind of your old days at uh, MIK and kind of the data warehousing space, where do you see kind of this this idea of data warehousing going in the future as analytics become more and more important as more and more cloud providers or yeah. as the big cloud providers are really, really starting to take aim at the capital markets. What do you kind of see being the longer term trends there? Well, I, I think that it, it's a big data play. And I think the people like Google and Amazon and Microsoft are providing really good tool sets in their web infrastructure or their cloud infrastructure that's going to solve a lot of the problems that historically asset managers had to build themselves. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot more generic tool sets that can be utilized to solve the business problem. And so having to deal with all these data sets and the integration and the mapping and the cross-referencing to get useful information out, I think we're going to see a huge cost reduction in that exercise than what's typically being done in-house. Okay. Okay. And... Last question is, you know, Marshall, what are you personally, you know, what have you kind of learned from uh, this pandemic being at home? Is there, because me and you, we're both kind of people that like to go out. We like to meet people, um, you know, being locked up inside and talking with people over uh, Skype or Teams or Zoom or whatever it is, isn't necessarily our uh, bread and butter for, for us, I think. For right. you, how, you know, what kind of changes have you had to make? I, I think staying focused throughout the day. Working in isolation has been my biggest challenge. Yeah. Right, I've gotten better at it, but the social isolation has definitely taken its toll over the past uh, two to three months for me. Yeah. You still building boats up there? In, uh, <laughs> up there? <laughs> I'm still playing around on boats. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, uh, uh, what was it? We talked uh, many years ago. What, what, was, what kind of boats were you uh, building, working on for many, many years? Yeah, I, I built a, a boat called the International 14 sailboat. It was a two-person, high-performance, trapezing kind of boat, yeah. Nice. <laughs> that goes way back, though. <laughs> Before the capital markets really took over for you. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Marshall, uh, thanks so much uh, for joining the podcast. Uh, as always, uh, always fun Thank you, Anthony. Okay. Good.